Up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Upstate's Director of Emergency Management talks about pandemic preparations and what you need to do to stay ready. Certainly keep a supply of face masks on hand, but what's interesting for us is the power that social distancing has to really flatten the curve. It's helping tremendously. Onondaga County's Health Commissioner discusses the importance of contact tracing and disease prevention. It's a pretty very detailed and tedious work, but it is very crucial because the goal is to prevent transmission of virus to make sure we can protect more and more people. And a pediatrician explains the importance of maintaining well-child appointments even as the virus remains a threat. The last thing we want to do is not give a kid their immunization because we're worried about COVID and then have them get another disease that's out in the community. All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today on a special coronavirus-themed episode, Onondaga County's Health Commissioner discusses the importance of contact tracing and disease prevention. Then, a pediatrician talks about why you shouldn't postpone well-child appointments. But first, Upstate's Director of Emergency Management talks about pandemic preparations and what we need to do to stay ready. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. What are we learning about the coronavirus pandemic in terms of keeping ourselves and our families safe and prepared? Chris Dunham is speaking about that with me. He's the Director of Emergency Management at Upstate. Thank you for your time, Chris. Oh, thank you for having me. What lessons have we learned from this pandemic so far, sort of in terms of the hospital's emergency preparedness? Um, For us, this is a situation we've been actually preparing for for many years. Um, What's interesting now with COVID is um, really the reaffirmation of our working with our local response partners, the county, the state, um, and everybody. Um, And also what's interesting for us is the power that social distancing has to really flatten the curve. It's helping tremendously. And so that's the practice of keeping a distance from people that aren't part of your immediate household. Correct. Correct. So you think the numbers would be higher if people weren't doing that? Oh, absolutely. Um, We've actually modeled some of the worst case scenarios and the the numbers would be just tremendously higher. Can you describe the role of incident command and explain what that's been used for? Sure. Incident command is a process. So it is a way in which a large organization, um, even counties or states for that matter, can mobilize resources quickly and as effectively as possible. For us at SUNY Upstate, we've done incident command activations during, I would say, smaller events, but certainly not less critical. So like if we happen to lose power in a certain section or if we, you know, a, a water main broke where we'd lose water for a certain amount of time, we would activate incident command and, and move resources and patients and staff and equipment to places, uh, locations that would need it most. So. Uh, we would have uh, like a winter storm where we knew we'd get significant snowfall. We would move people and resources to the departments we had to keep open. So the challenge with a a hospital is, is, is we can never close. We can't, you know, put a sign on the front door and go away. We always need to be open to help our community. And I know that you um, practice the incident command with drills different times of the year. Have you ever had a practice drill that looked at pandemic response? Yes, actually. Um, We've done some large-scale drills um, with pandemics, but certainly not to the extent that we've been confronted with with COVID. We've learned a lot of lessons, especially with preparing for the Ebola uh, outbreak that happened a few years ago that definitely helped us in terms of infrastructure and education for our own employees. What's really interesting for us is that the the policies and procedures that we've had to create in response to COVID, uh, being a novel uh, virus, has been just a tremendous uh, learning experience for everybody. So what have been some of the biggest challenges for the hospital? Because I know operations haven't been normal 
quote unquote, for a while. I mean, visitors are not allowed. There's things like that. But um, what are some other examples of changes and challenges? Uh, for us, the biggest, one of the bigger challenges were resources. So PPE, the personal protective equipment, getting that in enough supply so that we can continue to do what we do has been a challenge. And so far, our folks have done a great job of it. Um, we've also had to kind of develop new ways to do things. Um, something as simple as walking into work for our staff, we needed to identify, okay, what's the process that we check them? Um, what happens when somebody doesn't get checked out okay? How do we do this? We also needed to control how, how much uh, personal protective equipment we burn or use on a daily basis. Um, supplies at the first part of this um, pandemic were very scarce. Um, and we were blessed with a, a larger than normal stockpile of stuff that we saw. We had the foresight to purchase just before things started really going um, going away overseas. But even that, we we had to identify, okay, you know, we have to curtail the elective surgeries to save the burn rate. We have to kind of close certain areas and departments. And it's been a, a very interesting process on how we determine okay, we can do this, but not that. And then when certain things change, we go back and things like that. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a great experience. Well, I want to talk to you about sort of uh, changing and, and looking at how individual families have reacted. But first, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Chris Dunham. He's the Director of Emergency Management at Upstate Medical University. And we're talking about lessons learned during the pandemic. Now, Chris, you and I have spoken previously about emergency preparedness, and certainly mm -hmm. central New Yorkers are conditioned to be prepared for things like blizzards or bad weather. Um, this is unlike any disaster the community has tried to prepare for, right? Right. It, it, it's very interesting on the scope and scale that this has impacted our community. Um, and I think for the most part, uh, you know, the vast majority of people are really paying attention to the scientists and the people who are making the recommendations, which will keep us healthier. Um, pre preparing the public for this, I mean, you know, you'd say the word global pandemic a few years ago, and it, you know, that was the stuff of movies. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of people don't think about that in their daily lives, and why should they? Um, so this has been kind of an interesting eye-opener for, I'm sure, a lot of people. Um, what, what, do you think, what do you think the community has done right during this pandemic? Uh, social distancing, certainly the communication piece, um, uh, not unnecessarily showing up to the emergency departments unless they need to. I also think, too, um, wearing masks in public. A lot of people have taken heed, and it's it's been great to see. Um, Certainly the focus on hand sanitizer and things like that and using that in public has been good. Um, social distancing, um, you really can't go anywhere without seeing signs reminding people and, and also, you know, maybe tape on the floor of where people should and shouldn't possibly stand. Um, I think that's a really interesting, for me, very interesting to see how well businesses and local folks have taken some of the lessons to heart and really made proactive steps to ensure that folks are as safe as they can be. So we've heard talk that perhaps um, this virus may um, kind of dissipate a little over the summer months, but that there's the potential it could come back in a second wave in the fall. So I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you, how can we, what should we do now? How can we be better prepared if there's another surge, um, what do families need to do now so that we're ready? Well, I, I think, it, you know, certainly uh, keep a supply of, of face masks on hand, whether they be, you know, bandanas or what have you. But just be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of your situation. Um, if a second wave does occur, and and. Right now, we, we're not, I don't think anybody's entirely sure that a second wave will or will not occur. There's a lot yet to be uh, thought about with this virus or at least discovered. What is important to understand is, is if you see and hear of reports from um, good sources that say, you know, like Department of Public Health or, or, or even the hospitals, you know, hey, that we're seeing an uptick in an increase in these cases, then then you might want to start social distancing a little bit or certainly 
if you're in one of those high risk groups, um, you know, make, take special precautions. Maybe don't go to, uh, you know, stores with a lot of people at once um, and kind of do that. So when this first um, kind of came to light, toilet paper was in short supply, <laughs> baking supplies, yeah. uh, you know, some yep. uh, canned goods and things. I mean, and some of that's starting to come back, but do we need to sort yep. of stock up now? Um, no, I would certainly toilet paper was a little bit of what they're calling panic buying. Okay. Um, uh, you know, you would need your normal amount. You don't need five cases. Um, canned goods, having a two-week supply of canned goods on hand is always a good idea, whether it's a, a winter storm or COVID. Also, having um, two weeks of supply of prescriptions, making sure you're not low on your prescriptions, copies of any electronic medical records or important documentation, keep that safe. Um, certainly, soap. Uh, some hand sanitizer, not a bad thing, but you don't need to buy cases of it. And then, um, you know, maybe some cash on hand if you need to buy some groceries and, you know, anything else. I don't recommend people go out and <clears throat> spend hundreds of dollars above and beyond what they would normally buy. Thank you to Upstate's Director of Emergency Management, Chris Dunham. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what's involved in contact tracing? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An important job in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic is that of contact tracers. Talking with me about their role is Dr. Indu Gupta, the Commissioner of Health at the Onondaga County Health Department. She is also part of the Public Health and Preventive Medicine faculty at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Gupta. Well, thank you for having me, Amber. What is the role of a contact tracer? What do they do? So, um... The contact tracer is a very important part of the public health measure in terms of prevention. Uh, contact tracing is a core disease control measure. Um, as it's very important for everyone to understand that it is implemented by local health departments, uh, sometimes also state health departments, and it is a key strategy for preventing spread of any infectious disease. It is not something new. It has been um, part of our public health work for decades. Uh, when you think of measles, mumps, uh, TB, or Ebola, uh, and in this situation, COVID-19 pandemic, it is so crucial that we stay involved and we do contact tracing. Uh, and the contact tracing only happens if we do the case investigation. So does that mean that a contact tracer traces the contacts for a certain person who's infected? Right, so let me just give you a scenario. I think it will be easier to understand that way is, so if there's somebody's case, uh, a test is positive, they tested for COVID-19, and test uh, became, comes to local health department, uh, in this situation, Onondaga County Health Department, our staff will look up the name and, and information of that person and contact that individual uh, in, uh, in a lot of situations, if primary care physicians have ordered them, hospitals have ordered them, they have already contacted the patient. Uh, otherwise, we certainly, we work with the, we, with the primary care physician and the hospitals as well, but we will directly contact the case, um, the person who is test positive, that's what we call code-unquote case, and go through the whole history. That means you have to uh, go from two days prior to the uh, person become symptomatic, not the test they did, but the person's onset of symptoms when they had fever, cough, uh, shortness of breath, a headache, you know, diarrhea, nausea, um, body ache, different kind of symptoms which, which we are happening with the COVID-19 uh, situation. And we go 48 hours before those onset start, started and we pretty much walk the person's path. We ask them to remember where they were 
um, and where did they work? Did they go to the grocery store? Did they exercise, went to the gym, or went to the park? Any kind of situation, did they have family gatherings? And why this is important? Because that is a key component in identifying contacts. Those people who this case had come in contact with and may have exposed, those are the ones which we need to reach out to all of them. Uh, majority of them hopefully are asymptomatic. It means they have no symptoms, but we need to rapidly identify them and talk to them. And that's what the contact tracers do. They will go one by one to these individuals uh, by phone. We do by phone or emails. Uh, most of the time phones, uh, email is the one which they will provide it to us and do the thorough interview and identify what kind of exposure these individuals had with the case. And based on the conclusion, uh, duration of exposure, how close they were, then they will be recommended that you should be in quarantine at this point for 14 days. Uh, the cases are at, uh, uh, put in isolation for minimum of 10 days, and the quarantine for the contacts are for 14 days. So I imagine you could end up with a person who just isn't good at remembering what they did in the past week or so. so right, right. That, that is a challenge, yes. Uh, you'll be surprised how many times people uh, do remember. We just give them some time. So usually a lot of times we will tell them, anything you remember, you call us back, right? So our staff is very good about those things and uh, making connection with them and making feel make them feel comfortable. Um, Sometimes people feel comfortable if I'm going to tell them, you know, my friend will get upset and, and my uh, coworker will get upset. We never identify who this person is. Our pretty much will be sentence our staff uses and it truly public health departments uses. You, may, you have been exposed, you were in contact with somebody who has been diagnosed with COVID-19, protecting the case's identity. Uh, it is, uh, and, and also it gives a little comfort to the person who we are interviewing, um, and then just feels like that it's not going to be cornered. And I think it's important for people to feel comfortable uh, going back in memory lane and trying to identify. Um, and yes, there are certain times, especially when we are talking elderly individuals, uh, we have to go back and forth with them. They will remember sometimes if they say talk to my daughter or son or somebody, then we will get that additional information uh, after their approval to talk to them. Um, and a lot of times it's a pretty very detailed and tedious work, but it is very crucial because the goal is to prevent transmission of virus to make sure we can protect more and more people. So we've seen on the local news um, in recent weeks, uh, you know, there was an exposure, a potential exposure at a certain store. Is that the result of a contact tracer's work? Yes, that exactly is the contact tracer's work. So if you think somebody um, who was a contact of a case um, went to when they were um, uh, actually the not the contact, uh, the contact if they are symptomatic, we get concerned. So these are the cases who are walking. So these are case investigators. We don't have a, a two separate category at this point are people who do the case investigation. They also do contact investigations. Uh, case investigation is more detailed. And those news releases which you are looking at and you listened to uh, are as a result of direct interview with the cases who were COVID positive and they went to different places when they were shopping. And at the same time, they had a lot of symptoms. Um, we asked them if they had masks on that does some protection and depending on what kind of mask they have it because other people if they're not wearing masks that sort of it dilutes that protection that's why we it's important for people again i think when we put those releases out to one is to inform the public number two is raise awareness that it's everywhere and number three in terms of when they have a mask if people aren't not wearing masks you don't have double protection to protect yourself so it gives a lot of good public information. Um, and also if people feel like they were, you know, have underlying health problems and they are elderly, they will be asked to monitor themselves to make sure if they have any signs of thinking of COVID-19, they should uh, go and talk to their doctor and, and call them and then get tested. 
So there are multiple reasons for us to do those uh, those press releases. If the employee of a store or a place, uh, the workplace is uh, is uh, positive, that has a little bit different implication because they may have direct interaction. And that's why the employers have put a lot of safety measure, putting plexiglass, right, putting six feet away. Um, all these things um, protect customer. So when our case and contact investigators are talking to our staff, uh, to the cases or contact, they actually ask all those detailed details from, from those individuals. Um, and that's how we make determination. Um, did we complete everything? Do, do we have to inform the public? If we do feel like we have to inform the public, then we will do so. Otherwise, our contact investigation can identify one zero contact because the person was not anywhere from the case to 40 or 50 contacts in some situation. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Indu Gupta, Onondaga County's Health Commissioner. So let me ask you about, uh, because I understand that there are some positions available for contact tracers, what kind of person makes a good contact tracer? So a good contact tracer will be a person who has good communication skills, who can relate with an individual. Um, it is important to have empathy when you're talking to uh, people about their personal health, right? It's, it's a scary time for everybody. Um, they get uh, emotionally charged, so person should have uh, understanding of, about, of the disease itself, COVID-19, so that um, would be able to answer the question. He or she doesn't have to be in health field, uh, but uh, a background in public health sometimes is, is extremely helpful, or some medical field uh, is also helpful, but it's not, a, um, it's not a requirement because some of those skills, the contact tracers uh, can actually learn by doing the Johns Hopkins training and then also hands-on training if they work with the health department staff on, you know, depending on case-by-case -case basis, they have their own, um, they have their own chain of command. Uh, the one which are being, going to be hired by New York State Department of Health, but at the same time, they will be working in pretty much a collaboration uh, side by side with the health department team. You mentioned the Johns Hopkins training, and I'll let listeners know that we will post a link to that on our website, healthlinkonair.org, for people who are interested. Um, I know that the training is free, uh, and people may just be interested in it. Yes, I think it's an excellent training. I have gotten really good feedback from. Uh, from various people, uh, many of my own staff who have been actually doing case and contact investigation, case, what we call case investigation and contact tracing for the last couple of months, they actually were very curious and they thought that is a good training. And many of other county staff actually have done also who are not part of the health department, ready to go on board essentially if we have a surge. So I would encourage if people are interested in public health, I think it's important to go through that, it will give you a good, succinct way of understanding. It's about four to six hours, and you can actually get certificate also if you wish. So it is, it is a good, it's a good learning. So are the contact tracing, is that mostly done by telephone or by email, or do, is there some in-person work as well? So it is at this point, because we are talking a very infectious disease, so it is done on the telephone. Uh, most of and sometimes supplemented by text once the uh, once the contact established, especially for the follow ups and how are you? Do you have any fever? Those kind of things. If anything else, uh, they can be actually um, enrolled in a texting system, which will continue to remind people to uh, to uh, to report the symptoms back to the health department. Uh, so there are various ways. Emails are not the best way to communicate because um, th that is something will there will delay. Uh, however, email are very integral part of uh, the contact investigation because we can send them information, uh, a lot of material for them to review, uh, quarantine orders, that's what we like to do, and also release orders. These are very important and they can send questions to the staff also. So the emails work as a supplement, 
but not the primary mode of communication. Uh, phone calls are the first one, followed by text as a supplementary and the email. Okay, and let me review uh, when we're talking about the infectious period for someone with COVID, that actually begins before the person has symptoms, right? Right, so there is a still a lot of unknown about this virus. Uh, we continue to learn based on the information at this point and considering uh, people when they are asymptomatic, get, get, they can transmit the virus. The recent CDC recommendation uh, along which was adopted by New York State Department of Health, and we as the health department adopted uh, more than a month ago also, that two days prior to people have symptoms, they will be considered uh, infectious. So it is important for us when we ask the question to the individual, what, where were you two days prior to you had the onset of symptoms? Um, uh, and that's how we have been working um, our uh, investigations. So if a person lists and tells you the places that they went in the preceding two days, if they wore a mask the whole time, are you as concerned about them as if they went around without a mask? So depending on what kind of mask. So if you have surgical mask, N95s, nobody's going to wear them outside, right? These are basically uh, limited for the healthcare workers in the hospital setting. They are the best ones, but because of limited uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, they are not available to general public. So um, if, if people are working in a health system and they have N95 um, and they worked while they were asymptomatic, that actually gives a little bit comfort to us that, okay, these people might have protected the people uh, around them. Uh, if they were wearing surgical masks, that depends on if the patient was wearing surgical mask. Uh, um, then it, we have to we have to see what kind of symptoms this person had or did not have. Uh, so we have to take into consideration what was the exposure to the other parts, whether the other person was they exposed to at their work site um, were wearing what kind of mask. Were they wearing mask or not mask? Which kind of mask? So it depends on the person who had who is the case versus who is the person they are communicating with. Um, however, with the general public, it becomes a little bit complicated. Uh, people have been wearing sort of a surgical mask uh, as well as mostly cloth mask. It provides some protection and also depends if other people around them are wearing masks, some kind of protection. So the cloth mask and surgical mask are not good as good as 995. However, surgical mask is a lot better than the cloth mask, but they are not widely available also, and we won't recommend everybody wearing them either in the general public because we want healthcare workers to have them first. Um, uh, the, if their cloth masks are worn by both uh, people, uh, the person who is positive case as well as the, everybody in the store, it gives some protection, but if it's not all. That's why I think we look for social distancing measures and personal hygiene matters, all those things. And if you are symptomatic, don't go to those places, stay home. All these things complement each other. There's no one size fits or there's no one strategy. Every strategy builds on the second strategy, right? So we really, if we want to reduce the transmission of virus in the community, you have to build on. If you're sick, stay home and use hand washing, right? All these things are very crucial. Well, very good. Thank you so much to Dr. Indu Gupta. She's Commissioner of Health at the Onondaga County Health Department. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Why will child appointments matter even during a pandemic? Next on HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many of us have been putting off non-essential visits to doctor's offices during the pandemic. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics is urging parents not to put off well-child visits. I'm talking about this with Dr. Stephen Blatt. He's a professor of pediatrics who oversees the Pediatric and Adolescent Center at Upstate. 
Welcome back to HealthLink on here, Dr. Black. Thank you. Now, during this time when schools have been closed and most people have been at home, have you seen a drop in the number of kids coming for well-child appointments? So our office and every other office in central New York and actually nationwide has seen a dramatic drop. Um, most of it has been planned. Um, so when COVID first hit um, back in March, pretty quickly at Upstate, we started to plan for what we saw coming down the road. And what, one of the things that we wanted to focus on were patients that had to be seen because there was something clinically significant or medically necessary, as well as time sensitive. So in pediatrics, um, one of the most important things we do occurs in our well-child visits. And we looked at those and we broke them down into two big categories. So for the older kids, those well-child visits by and large focus on um, a lot of um, educational things, family things, growing up things, as well as physical health. And for most of those kids, putting those visits off for a month, three months, four months is not a big deal. We don't want to forget them, but to put them off is not problematic. For the younger kids, that's where things really become clinically significant and time sensitive. And it's just starting at birth. We obviously have always been going to the nursery when we have newborns and we see them the day they're born. And then when they leave the hospital, we have them come back the first week to um, check on their weight, look for jaundice, make sure the feeding is going well, they're peeing and pooping okay. So those visits we kept on doing. And then pretty quickly we get into the immunization schedule. And when we look at newborns, their first immunization is in the nursery. And then we typically immunize at two months, four months, six months, a year, 15 months of age. And it's a lot of immunizations, but they are so important because the diseases for which kids are protected from with these immunizations are still out there. And the last thing we want to do is not give a kid their immunization because we're worried about COVID and then have them get a different shot, get another disease that's out in the community. So for the younger kids, we, we maintain that um, well-child schedule and, and have not altered that at all. So with the immunizations, two months, four months, six months, if you put those off for a few months, I mean, these have to be done in sequence, right? And there's a certain amount of time between them. Does it mess it up if it gets delayed? So um, just to be clear, we don't put those off. But for when kids do fall behind, what it does is it doesn't change the schedule. We catch them up as soon as we can. But what it does do, it puts them at risk for getting the disease. So currently, it seems like a long time ago, but it was only last year that we had a measles outbreak in New York State and in this country because kids were not getting immunized with measles. So we know there's lots of measles out there. And the first measles shot is at a year of age. So up to a year of age, they're protected by maternal antibodies. So if we did not give a 12-month-old a measles shot, they could get measles at 13 months of age. And that could be more devastating than COVID. Um, we know there's a lot of pertussis, whooping cough out there. And we saw a couple of kids in our office not too long ago who had pertussis. Um, and they were not immunized on time. So timely immunizations are so important, they're so effective, they have minimal and rare side effects. So they're very safe and they prevent against disease that we see fairly routinely. So before uh, this coronavirus was known, parents have been sort of wary 
of bringing their well child to the pediatrician because there may be sick children there with anything that they don't want their child to get. Does this virus, is, does that change things with coming to the pediatrician's office? You, you know, it, it's fascinating to look at um, people's behavior. And I think when I, we started, I was worried about what people were going to do. And after living this for the last few months, I've been so impressed with parents and their decision-making ability in, in how to take care of their kids with COVID. And, and let me share a few things. Um, if you look at our emergency rooms um, at Upstate, and we have two hospitals, we have an urgent care, and also looking at our sick visits, patients have been really good, parents have been really good about not rushing to the emergency room or to the office for things that could be handled over the phone. So I was on call this weekend and a parent called me up and we talked about her 11 month old with fever and some crankiness. And when we, I was all done hearing from the mother and we talked about it, I said, well, I think this could be treated at home or we could arrange for you to go to after hours at Community General. And she said, you know, with COVID, I'd just rather stay at home. And I said, I think that's a fine idea. And I think before COVID, she might have wanted to go into the emergency room or after hours to be seen, which is also okay. But I think parents understand um, we shouldn't do unnecessary travel, unnecessary visits. So, so parents have been really good with that. And in fact, the volume in the emergency rooms for kids and adults is way down. So today is May 12th, and, and I saw that at Upstate, our emergency rooms have been running at about half capacity for adults and kids. So emergency rooms are way down, and, and that's a good thing right now. Um, the other thing that we're doing in our office, and and I know pediatricians are doing throughout the community, and, and I'm sure the adult doctors are doing also, is we change the way we take care of people. So in our office, we schedule as much as we can through telehealth. And for those that don't know about telehealth, it could either be done um, through a, a typical um, phone conversation, but even better, it's done over the computer or you could, the patient could have a phone so we could see people. And we've done a lot of telehealth visits. Um, I saw data again today for Upstate in about three quarters of the visits in the institution are done via telehealth. In primary care pediatrics in our office, we're down to about 25% because we do more in office, but a lot of the specialists do telehealth. And that keeps people out of the office that don't need to come in, but it also gives people access to their healthcare provider for things that they need. So for pediatrics, one of the things where it works really well are for things like um, behavior follow-up. So we have a lot of children on medication for attention deficit disorder, where they have issues with anxiety or depression. And those visits work really well over telehealth. Um, you could see the patient, what they look like. You know, you can see if you're smiling or not smiling. And you could you're able to communicate with them almost as if they're sitting in front of you. It's still not as good, but it's pretty good, and it keeps them home. And people know they should stay home, and we want to keep them home. So then what happens in the office, we have a lot less people that are physically here. And our goal in the office is when a patient comes in, they never see another patient in the office. We have in our office 24 exam rooms, our waiting room is almost always completely empty. So a patient comes in, they don't see anybody, and it's rare to have somebody actually sitting in a chair. If somebody's there, they're standing at the desk waiting to be to go into a room. Um, and we actually took out most of the chairs in the waiting room to make sure that if you sit in a chair, you're gonna be six feet apart from somebody else. And then even when you check out, 
We no longer have people start up at, stop at the checkout desk. We do the checkout in the exam room, and then they just walk right out of the office. When they walk into the building, they're met by screeners to see if they have fever and if they have any symptoms. Everybody gets a mask. Um, we use gallons of hand sanitizer. And so we make this as safe as possible for all of our patients. And I know my colleagues in the community do similar things. Some of them, you'll see the well patients in the morning, the sick patients in the afternoon. Some people that have two offices will have the sick patients go to one office, the well patients to another. So every, everybody's doing what works in their office to make it safe. And I think it's really important for people to know that, and I feel comfortable saying this, that in this community, if you need to go to the emergency room, if you need to go to the doctor, it's safe to do so. You should not be fearful of going to the doctor because I think all of the healthcare offices have done a really good job in ensuring safety, not just for the patients, but also for the people that work there. We want to keep everybody healthy. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Blatt. He's the director of the Upstate Pediatric and Adolescence Center. What are you advising parents to do if their child develops a fever and a cough? For children, it's a different answer than it is for adults. As far as we know, children are going to get COVID in similar rates as adults. However, they're not going to act the same as adults. So most of the kids that get COVID don't have a lot of symptoms or the symptoms that they have seem very similar to the other childhood illnesses they get. So kids are always getting colds. Kids always have a runny nose and a cough. I, don't know, I, I have a little cough. I'm, I always have a tickle in my throat. I'm not ill, but I always have a little cough. But kids always have one. And so... For kids, if they have the symptoms that we worry about in COVID, such as cough or fever or sore throat, that may be COVID or that might be one of the viruses that they typically get. So if they're not having any difficulty breathing, if they're not all that ill-appearing, parents are, are, are best advised to call their doctor and say, here's what's going on, what should I do? For the vast majority of those kids, if they're acting well, we keep them at home. It's only for the kids where people are worried that we bring them in or their symptoms sound more severe that we may want to see them. But a, a cough, a sore throat, or runny nose in a kid is treated the way we always do, which is we try to keep them at home and do home treatment. Um, the thing that people should realize is that when kids have those symptoms, even though I'm saying stay at home, we should also assume they have COVID. So we, we don't need to do anything for them, but we, that's, those are precisely the kids we do not want to go visit grandma because they may have COVID and spread it you know, to somebody else. Kids are, are often silent carriers. They, they have the disease, they have a little bit of symptoms, a little cough, but they're not that sick. So people aren't worried about them because everybody misses their kids, their grandkids. Um, but those are the ones that are gonna get other people sick. So we still need to continue social distancing and isolating in home. So there's a lot of talk about and fear about pediatric multi-system inflammatory disease. What do parents need to know about that at this point? So this is, you know, it seems like every week there's some new scary aspect of COVID coming up. And, and, and this is the newest one, and it's seen just in children. Um, and it's only been identified publicly for the, for the last maybe two weeks. So we're still learning about this. The most recent report I saw said there are still only about 75 to 100 cases that have been identified. And what this is seems to be um, a multi-system, so it, it involves different parts of the body, disease, 
that seems different than regular COVID. COVID, we tend to think of a respiratory illness um, or this multi-system inflammatory disease. Kids could present with fever, rash, red eyes, belly pain. They may only have a little bit of a cough or a little bit of shortness of breath, but it's a different type of illness. But all of those symptoms you listed are things that might alarm a parent anyway. They may be calling their pediatrician anyway. Correct. Okay. Correct. And and um, I, and I hesitant to give two two specific recommendations because I think this is a changing entity. We don't know what it really is yet. So I think the best thing to do if you see symptoms in your in your child that look unusual including the rash, the red eyes, the belly pain, call your doctor and, and, and talk to your doctor. You know, doctors have a, I mean, we're all working. I've been to the office every day since this started, um, but we have plenty of time to talk to our patients. We're not seeing as many patients in the office as we did before. So do not hesitate to call your doctor. If you have a question, especially with unusual symptoms, call your doctor and say, here's what's going on. Do I need to worry? In terms of helping children cope, because we've heard about how resilient children tend to be, but in terms of helping them cope with this pandemic and, the, and how life has sort of been turned upside down, do you have any advice for parents? So everybody struggles with COVID. Whether you go to work every, if you go to work every day, you're worried, am I going to go sick? If I get sick, am I going to bring it home? If you don't go to work, you're at home saying, I'm going nuts. I'm home all day. I want to get out and do something. And kids are the same. Um, they want to get out. They want to run around. They want to play with their friends. Um, but kids are, um, they're really smart. And they're very perceptive. And I, and I think the best thing for kids is to start by talking to them, whether it's your three-year-old or your 13-year-old or your 18-year-old. We know adolescents don't like to listen to us, but they do hear us. And, and, I, and I think the evidence is pretty clear that the people that adolescents trust the most are their parents. Doesn't mean they're gonna do what we ask them to do, but they'll hear us. And I, and I think by talking to them, that's very reassuring, and to all of our kids, no matter what age. So I think that's the first thing, and explaining to them why we're doing what we're doing. Um, everybody likes routine, and as much as kids complain about school, they really miss it. The worst student in school misses going to school, because that's where their friends are. You know, many of them, their support systems are not only their friends, but it's their teacher, it's their coach, it's the school social worker, and they don't have access to them. Luckily, every school in town in central New York is making efforts to, to reach out to their kids, and I think that's an important resource. Um, so parents should also know that they can reach out to the, to the school. They could contact the school and say, how do I get in touch with that coach or with that social worker, with that teacher? And that's really important. There are many agencies in town that have always been there and they're still there waiting to help people. Um, there's 211, you pick up the phone and dial 211 and that's particularly helpful for mental health issues, for um, young kids um, with resources. Um, and there are a lot of agencies that have always been out there, the, the neighborhood, centers are still there, um, the physician offices, the counseling agencies, all the counseling agencies are doing telehealth, telecounseling. So there's still a lot of resources out there, too many to list by name, but people are still there. Um, I've had meetings with different mental health agencies in town, some from the county. Our, our county has a lot of wonderful resources. And most of those folks are working from home, but they're all working. A lot of people are still working. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Stephen Blatt, a professor of pediatrics and the director of the Upstate Pediatric and Adolescent Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. 
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Lisa Wiley teaches English in Buffalo, New York. She sent us a short but joyful portrait of a good doctor. Here is Dr. Moon is my mother's oncologist. Wonder if I'll see all his phases. Luminous, his round, smiling face pushes the celery-colored curtains aside, pulling all anxious tides toward him. My mother questions her arm hooked up to the juice, my father calls it. You need this, Dr. Moon says, or else my whole life is wrong. These shimmering rays of certainty, no sliver of tiny crescents, waning or waxing. You've got this, asserts quick-to-laugh Luna, a brilliant harvest moon. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <music>